winning the game of dollars and cents. It really does come down to dollars because you can throw two million men at something, but if all they have is rocks and sticks, they're not going to do well. And if the guns that you're going to sell them or give to them cost a lot of money and you have to choose between are we going to spend all the money to transport these rifles from the far east of Ukraine, of uh, Russia, or are we going to use it to, you know, continue to pay the oligarchs and whatnot in power so they don't try and, you know, get rowdy in Moscow? It becomes a very difficult task. I think that's also part of the reason why we've seen such tremendously antiquated equipment being utilized by these proxy forces. And I suspect if, and it's a big if, it's not guaranteed by any means, that Putin calls for some mass mobilization on May 9th, that we'll see uh, more of that. It'll be like you're fighting the Soviet army from World War II, except the world's moved on in the last eight years. And that does, the kind of tactics don't work. Hopefully that uh, kind of answers that question for uh, Nina and Luis. Yes, thank you. And a quick uh, public service thingy. I mean, we're just checking this, but we're not quite sure yet as to why on earth today the Twitter glitches have been hunting us that much. But we've had the gremlins already since the morning and then in waves over and over and over again. Sometimes during the afternoon, we had uh, times where we could not cycle up people, where the audio dropped off. People tried three, four times. Um, we're checking as to whether there's anything which we can contribute from our end. But at the moment, please bear with us, have a bit of patience. And if there is an issue and uh, you can't cycle up or you can't hear anything, uh, try to do the usual thing to see whether that works, meaning stepping down, closing Twitter, closing the Twitter app, if need be, <clears throat> empty the cache of your phone or restart the whole the whole bang phone and try it yet again. This may help. Often enough, it does. But uh, today is very, very glitchy. So we apologize for any inconvenience. But there's, there's no ill will on our part. On the contrary, we love talking to you. Oh, there's some stuff that just came out from Twitter Spaces. They're testing a feature. When some hosts start a space, a space card will be sent as a tweet so that listeners can reply, engage, and share straight from the space. We hope it makes it easier to participate in the conversation. It's now testing on iOS and Android. Um, yeah, it looks like it's essentially a, uh, direct chat icon. So it'll make a little chat box at the bottom. If you see that, if you can visualize that now, it would be somewhere to the lower right side of your screen when you're in the space. Um, there should be like a little text bubble circle thing. Um, let me know, maybe try it out, but we are very much in the unpaid beta tester stage of dealing with Twitter spaces, unfortunately. And with that, let's go to Mr. Colt. Uh, I was curious, um, have we seen um, what the plan with the new weaponry, especially the donations um, from uh, Poland? And I realized that uh, they have to be trained, that they, they had to be trained on that. I'm not sure if the uh, Ukrainian tank divisions were undermanned or uh, or didn't have or they had too many tanks or not enough tanks to fulfill their uh, brigades and such. So as far as tanks, I. The Ukrainians have more tanks now than when they started the war. What they've lost, though, is trained tank crews, especially early days of the war. A lot of tanker units kind of got caught out with their pants down, and a lot of Ukrainian uh, tanks were destroyed or were forced to be uh, left behind. So let's assume, and I'm going to be very critical here, um, very negative, let's assume that Ukraine only has as many tanks, that somehow they lost as many tanks that we don't know about as the ones they've got from Russia, right? they're still where they were early war. And we know that Russia has lost considerable amounts of tanks and they're not replenishing their own stockpiles. They're doing it via storage facilities and whatnot, but they've had a number of issues there as well. Some reports that only 
10 to 20 percent of the Russian tanks that are in storage are actually capable of being sent to the front lines and the rest would require uh, extensive remilitarizing or refurbishment or what have you. Um, the tank cruise, on the other hand, is a different story because that is a, it's not like driving a car. Um, it takes some time to learn. We've had a few people here and I think we hopefully if we have them, um, we're not seeing we have a few uh, gentlemen who have uh, experience with tanks. Um, once you're trained as a tanker, you can transition to different kinds of tanks more easily. Um, the way it's been explained to me is it's like if you know how to drive a stick shift, you can drive a Miata or you can drive a McLaren. They're two totally different cars. You're going to need to learn how to drive the McLaren. But ultimately, the very basic principles remain the same. Some of the other uh, armored units coming in, it, it seems that most of Ukraine armor has been not missing in action, but after the first few days, they pulled it back and put it in defensive positions. We've started to see them come out a bit more, especially in the east. But Ukrainian armor has been very much kind of held in the back, as far as I've been able to tell. The working hypothesis there is until that there is some kind of major dedicated assault, there's no reason to group all of those up in one place because otherwise the Russians will just bomb them. And then the other armored vehicles coming in, um, the things that are like APCs, they take much less time to train. Uh, I've been described like the M113s that the U.S. National Guard is sending. You can basically drive them like a zero-point tractor. Um, it's just a bunch of levers. Does that more or less answer the question? Yeah, I, I was just curious. Um, you know, are they training? So, so, so you kind of answered it, um, but I was more curious. Are they within this new equipment that they're getting, especially the artillery as well? Are they moving the reserves um, to fulfill new brigades, or are they? bringing active duty troops to train on those and are sending reserves to fill the, uh, the, the, the active military prior to the war. I think it's a little bit of both there. Um, we are seeing essentially three sections of the Ukrainian military and in order from most, most competent, least competent is a bad example, but it's the one I'm going to use the most trained, most equipped, most battle hardened are generally going to be the conventional military. Right. Um, they're the guys who are on the front lines. Most those are almost exclusively, along with some volunteer groups and some other units, uh, the ones leading assaults. Then you have the National Guard of Ukraine, and they're responsible for a number of things. Um, there's some of their units that are very, very, very capable, and those units are engaged in pitched urban combat in the Eastern Front. You also have then after that the um, what they're calling the territorial defense forces, and that's really more in line with the militia. You do have a number of people there who are former military veterans or have combat experience from the Donbass region, but the majority are not. Uh, and as a result, they get the, you know, sort of the short end of the stick. If there's things left over, they get them. What could happen and what we've seen happen is that they, there's been increased and better training for this third group of territorial defense forces. The likelihood is not that then they're suddenly getting sent to the front line because even two to three months of training does not equip you to start fighting, you know, Russian conventional soldiers, um, you know, at least one would think. However, if they're trained enough that they can then alleviate the responsibilities for elements of the National Guard in holding down cities or elements of the Ukrainian military, the regular military, then, yes, those troops can not only attack, but they can also take time, get retrained, focus on other things. Um but as far as the tanks that Ukraine has, they really have been fairly absent this war um, compared to Russian tanks. 
they exist. They're out there. We know where a number of those armored units are, especially in the East. They've been more active. But by and large, it seems like if the tanks are sitting somewhere, the uh, tanker crews are either sitting there with them or, like you said, they could be off training on other things. Yeah, you know, with their elastic defense, they're kind of doing uh, with the reliability of tanks and breaking down it. I think they make them a little bit more vulnerable. So I definitely get why they're pulled back for major breakthroughs and spearheads. So thanks. Thank you. Let's go to Tim. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, with regard to what you were talking about, their language, I saw a piece on the BBC News uh, today uh, where they, they've put out here about training Ukrainians on some of this more offensive equipment that's being sent out. Uh, and it was they were talking about uh, having the equipment in Ukraine by late May and having the Ukrainian forces trained on it by the end of June. And the sort of the overriding comment was the Ukrainian forces won't be in a p- position to go on a sort of full-out proper offensive until um, late June, uh, as I say, waiting for the delivery of this equipment and then the training on it. Yeah. Um, there's it's not a secret. There's members of a number of NATO countries that are doing training missions in both their own countries and in Poland and in Germany and other areas in Eastern Europe. Um, the, how long that takes, I, I certainly don't know. We have heard that the Ukrainian forces are highly motivated, um, as one would be in their situation, and so they tend to be picking things up faster. But the actual time frame on how long that'll take, like you said, you're probably at earliest, I'd say, sometime in June, possibly later. Uh, if that answers the question, then let's go to Luis. Or not more, we'll just say that. Hi. Uh, I hope you all can hear me. Uh, worse. Loud and clear. And I just have... I just have one quick question for you. Um, I, I'm seeing in the last 30 minutes a big, huge explosion in Kramatorsk. Have you seen it? I have not seen it in Kramatorsk. Um, unless, no, sorry, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so 810 that... apartments in a 32 high-rise buildings were damaged as a result of a missile strike in Kramatorsk by the Russians this morning. It was a targeted attack on civilians that could have resulted in huge casualties, but a timely evacuation saved dozens of lives. Nobody was reported killed, but 25 were injured. In five high-rise buildings, there's no electricity. Uh, In 15 more, there's no gas. Uh, Six private homes, two schools, kindergartens, a hospital, um, several buildings uh, beyond that were uh, damaged. I don't know what kind of bombs they used for that. That's Just looking at the pictures, it seems... um, like just landed in a courtyard and just obliterated some stuff. I think um, it's it's another one, another explosion. I just sent you the link to a video, and that that's really a big explosion. Uh, I wonder what bomb they used there. Yeah, that, that, this is more recent. Um, yeah, whatever that is, that's a looks like a really large fire of some kind. Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, the one that happened before happened during the daytime. And it's now night in Ukraine. So, yeah, Kramatorsk is being shelled uh, pretty heavily with fairly major explosives, unfortunately. And I guess we should stay tuned for more. And uh, with that, let's go to uh, Dominic. And then after that, to Money Moon. Hi there, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about, we were talking a little bit before about Reuters. And um, I've noticed that they're pretty good at kind of regurgitating the... Kremlin line, basically, you know, with, with the headline, Russia says X or Russia says Y. 
I must admit, I've never seen the one where they said fishing, uh, Finnish tanks. I mean, Russian tanks were on the way to the Finland border. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of, I'm not entirely sure if they were uh, ruining the reputation on that type of thing, but they do seem a little bit, shall we say, lacking nuance in the re reporting of uh, of blatant Russian propaganda, basically. Um, yeah, so just probably to bear that in mind, really, I think they seem to be nodding. Well, you know, I mean, it's difficult for them, isn't it, really, because they're a news agency, but you can't report, um, Russia says, in the same way as you'd say IBM says or GM says, and they seem to be kind of falling into that trap. Um, so that's all we've got to say, basically. Yeah, it's important to uh, examine all media sources, including the ones that you know you trust, because you may trust them, but they may have stringers that are pulling data from everywhere. Because in a rush to be first, you're going to be wrong more often. Um, so just it's a good general statement. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and there's nothing wrong with looking for a second opinion. Um, and also, frankly, the closer you get to breaking news, and we're, you're not going to get much closer than this space, um, you're going to have more uh, issues. You're going to have more times where you get information that's not accurate. You would hope that a place like Reuters, um, though they do tend to be more quicker than other mainstream news sources, has a vetting department, but especially in times of war, in a hurry to be first for media exposure or whatnot, things get missed and things get reported and repeated that perhaps shouldn't be. Um, let's go to Moon. Hello. Um, I was wondering, um, does Ukraine run the risk of losing access to the Black Sea if Russia runs an offensive against Odessa? I mean, Ukraine already has lost access to the Black Sea. They're not, you know, Ukraine doesn't really have a navy. They have some small boats that they're able to do some funky things with, but the Ukrainian navy has essentially been defunct since day one. They're all ashore. Um, and Russia has already mined the Black Sea. I mean, nobody's Nobody's getting through there anytime soon. However, a naval landing on Odessa, well, I'd love to see it attempted because it's a great way to kill a bunch of Russians doing something stupid at the same time. It's very unlikely to happen. There's the better part of 10 battalions uh, in the vicinity of Odessa. You know, so if we're using low-end numbers, that's still about 10,000 troops. Even if Russia loaded up every single one of its ships that could bring troops, you'd still only be looking at like 5,000, 6,000, and that's if you took everyone of which the majority of these naval infantry have already been deployed in combat roles on the ground. So they'd have to pull them back from the front lines, load them into ships, get them over to an area, even if it was just south of Odessa, because uh, they wouldn't land in the city. All, By the way, all these uh, beachheads are known about and mined. Uh, NATO intelligence would be watching these guys as soon as they step foot offshore onto the boats, and the Ukrainians have anti-ship missiles. So it... It's a losing proposition from a number of ways, um, but a naval a naval landing of any kind by Russia at this point doesn't make a lot of sense, especially in Odessa. Um, I would rate that as a very low light. Thank you. Right, and then uh, Brian E., we were able to get you up here as well. Um, if you have any questions or comments or things you may have missed. Can you hear me? Hello? You're a little broken up, but we can hear you pretty decent. Okay. Earlier today, uh, there was talk about grain that uh, attempts at them trying to sell it on the world market in some places. And some of the discussion was uh, centered around um, 
you know, can the U.S. Uh, seize those ships because, you know, it's stolen cargo, that kind of thing. And, and then I had to, I, I couldn't keep listening. I had to go back to work. I was on my lunch break. So I apologize if you've already in depth covered this, but my follow-up question was, what's the possibility of, uh, like, a, a privateer type situation where, you know, you have a, 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 a world power that says, you know, we, we can't commandeer ships, but we can establish these privateers that, you know, will do it for us, and then we have deniability when they do. Um, it's very unlikely. Uh, le- plausible deniability works a lot better when you're on wooden ships with letters of mark in the Caribbean in the 1600s. It doesn't work today when there's transponders on everything. Sort um, out our uh, technical difficulties. We'll get right back to the uh, regularly scheduled updates. Uh, in the meantime, if you have, uh, if you want to come up uh, and ask uh, any questions, feel free to raise your hand. Feel free to request the mic uh, with the button on the left there, and then raise your hand, and then we'll get you in uh, good order. Battle Moose. How's it going? Living the dream, man. Uh, I just came on because uh, some of us actually have to do work. But um, did I miss Language Learner's uh, daily update? Uh, just just a bit, but uh, he is here uh, still, I believe. I don't think he came back. He's He was lost. Oh, no, there he is. We still got a bunch of people lost in the ether. Linda, you have the mic? Yeah. Um uh, at the risk of um, upsetting some people, <laughs> um, I, I would like to kind of revisit a topic that I brought up. I think it was the day before yesterday, if I recall correctly, because um, all your rooms kind of run into one another. But there's different people uh, speaking uh, now. And given uh, some of the conversation that just happened, I have a couple of questions. And uh, let me just say up front, I don't need detail long detailed explanations most of what the answers that i'm would be looking for would be either yes no's or simple quick responses um so um with regard to the black sea um i one question would be um compared to the threat of the uh land war uh in the eastern side of ukraine uh, comparatively, what's the threat coming from ships um, in the Black Sea, not just from people landing, right, but also um, missiles being launched from either submarines or ships there? Is it comparatively um, high risk or low risk compared to what's happening, um, the, the threat that's happening on the eastern side of Ukraine? That's one question. Lower risk. It's so damaging in a lot of ways, but... There's a big difference between being hit with a cruise missile every so often and being shelled with artillery every hour on the hour. Okay. Okay. So it'd be like 90-10 or 60-40 or somewhere in there, 30-70. It's difficult to gauge risks because people are still dying gotcha. all over. Okay. But it's less risk, uh, especially in the western parts of Ukraine that are targeted by missiles, than those who are targeted by artillery. Currently. Do you see that changing um, in the within the next two weeks ish, like that there will be less missile strikes in the western side. Yeah, that let's, no. yeah, like I, I don't think the, the threat might migrate. I don't think it's. You don't, it's okay. okay, 
Okay. Okay. And so let me, so I think you, you had answered actually a lot of what I was getting to. So, um, because I was thinking, um, how to, um, and give me a short answer. I don't need a long answer. Um, I, what I was thinking of was, um, if the ships that are in the black sea that are the Russian fleet, uh, some out of the box thinking of ways in order to neutralize the risk of those ships. And I'm thinking, for example, um, disallowing them the capability of, of um, uh, refueling and uh, restocking supplies, et cetera, including missiles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that, it's is that really possible? Uh, Sevastopol is very firmly in Russian uh, territory, and uh -huh. there's no real way to hit it. Anything that they could use, the Ukrainians could use to hit it, would be better used elsewhere, uh, frankly. There are some funky little drones that are being sent that yeah. may have um, the ability to actually carry a, a very small torpedo and then drop it on things. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if those work. But at this point, Ukraine really doesn't have a navy in being. Yeah. Um, you know, they scuttled their own ships the first day of the war. Besides some limited stuff offshore, uh, the ability to hit a Russian ship is entirely dependent on how close that ship wants to come to shore. Okay, gotcha. Okay, one final one, then I'll let you go, because you just answered everything that I was asking. Um, so one one final thing, is it, can you, can you drop mines from drones? And if so, is it possible to drop, you know, a whole shitload of mines um, around the ports that the, the Russian submarines... Uh, and and ships would have to go through a mine, a really heavy heavy minefield, in order to resupply. Yes or no? Uh, it's not possible. And even if it was, the Russians would just remove the mines. Okay. All right. Thank you. That tells me a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. I see we do have a bunch of hands up. Uh, we did restart the space, so we should have better stability. Good news is we're able to get a bunch more people up here. So hopefully that's worked. And uh, you should check your calendars because in about two and a half hours we will have. A whole host of uh, expert panel speakers, not only uh, majors and colonels from the United States and Canada, but also Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, um, who has extensive experience dealing uh, with Ukraine, regarding Ukraine, has family from there. Um, and yeah, so, you know, don't change the station because in about two and a half hours, uh, he will be around. If you do have a real life and you can't stick around, that's fine, too. This space is being recorded. And so you can always listen to it as well. Follow the Walter Report account. That's the one up in the top left corner. And uh, logs of these spaces are saved for at least 30 days. And I believe they're also exported to some other locations. So after 30 days, you can still access them. I believe uh, Tim had the mic next. Uh, no, it's okay. Language uh, answered everything I was going to say. So we'll move on. All right. Uh, Nick Brown, then. Hi. Um, just a thought from very early on in the war, we saw um, Ukrainians filling bottles of uh, bottles with gasoline, making Molotov cocktails. There were stories that the first thing that happened when a Russian tank was knocked out was that people were salvaging the reactive armor to, to make IEDs with. <clears throat> Do we have any evidence that people in the, in the Russian occupied areas have been using IEDs or or, or Molotov cocktails uh, as part of their resistance? Uh, we have some evidence of it. It didn't work out very well. A bunch of people got killed. Uh, early war in Kherson. This is the difficulty. Um, you know, it's all good to want to die for your country, but 
you know, there's a bunch of guys who ran out of a forest essentially at um, a Russian uh, mechanized column with Molotovs and they just got turned into hamburger right there in the street. So sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. This is one of those times. Uh, there has been partisan activity. Um, some IEDs, though, really, it's because an IED to detonate, it means you have to then stick around the area. Right. And Russia has experience to some degree dealing with IEDs in Syria. Uh, so, you know, and especially now that they control the telecommunications network, if you're doing it with some kind of, you know, signal detonator, if they're not already jamming it, then they can figure out where it was and then they'll come after you. We have seen uh, more uh, very visceral and close-range attacks on Russian forces in the nightly hours, especially in Melitopol. Estimates are as high as 100 Russian soldiers have been killed while on patrol, and I've seen the pictures. They, those, some of those guys have been burned. Um, whether they were burned to death or burned after death, it's impossible to tell. Uh, another numbers have been stabbed and whatnot. That's a lot uh, easier because, you know, the phrase, a knife in the dark, you know, does kind of conjure up a lot more statements than, you know, an IND by the roadside. Because uh, these people have to go home and they have to live. You know, it, it's no sense in throwing your life away if, you know, to kill a Russian armored column. If then not only will they kill you, they'll go back to your house and they'll kill everybody there, too. So uh, we have that. That's a very long response for uh, a question. Hopefully I was able to get it. But the short answer is not really. And when we have seen Molotovs utilized, they haven't been tremendously effective. Okay, thank you. Basically, they're only good for soft skin vehicles or if, you know, you're lucky enough to throw it down a hatch, which is incredibly unlikely and, you know, language has already gone into details. Uh, Luis? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, cool. Just uh, two quick questions to language uh, because uh, I'm hearing you the first time. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about you and uh, if this report is daily? Hey, Sam Kecker, if you don't mind, uh, we try and just hold it down for a little bit, throw up your hand, we'll get to you as soon as we can. All right, brother? Appreciate it. Um, sorry, Luis, you cut out there for a brief second. Uh, a little, just, yeah, if you can repeat your question. Yeah, I, it's the first time I'm, I'm hearing you, and I wonder uh, what, what do you do? Uh, who are you? And uh, is this report daily? Uh, does this happen daily or, or how? Uh, I try and do the reports once a day. I, I do have a busy life uh, with other things, so I can't always get to it. But, you know, it generally happens once or twice a day. Um, I really should adhere to a better schedule. Unfortunately, I don't. But I'm glad you're able to tune in. And, um, you know, if you have any questions about stuff on the ground, I'm always happy to help as much as I can. Uh, Luis, did you mean... Did you mean about the Walter report specifically? No, about about language. The oh, Walter report, right. I, I know, and uh, but language is the first time I'm I'm hearing him, so that's There's why I'm asking. Other people who can also do the military update. I am not. Uh, I'm not a monolith here by any means. Um, I'm not sharing any information here that I can't get publicly and that you can't get publicly. Um, so we can, you know, what I'd recommend for, I imagine most of our audience is English speaking. Uh, Twitter, you're all on Twitter, you're all listening to it, if it works. Sometimes you go, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on in this area. Or I'm hearing that, you know, even CNN or, you know, whoever is talking about it, Reuters. So Google search the name of the town. Maybe figure out what the name of that town is in Russian or Ukrainian. Start searching for that in Twitter. Most Twitter has a nice, handy, uh, automated translation function, and that will help you considerably in finding some information. That's how I get a lot of it. I'm also very lucky and very fortunate that a tremendous amount of people 
uh, send me information, but I am far from the be all end all expert here. Um, you know, we all kind of stand on the shoulders of giants and I stand on many, many shoulders. Um, but it's, I'm touched that uh, you tuned in and, you know, if you have any questions, um, Imperius is also very competent, very capable. We have another number of hosts that uh, can speak with greater authority than I on military matters. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you know, thank you for tuning in. It's always a pleasure. Uh, absolutely amazing the work you all are doing. Uh, it's the third uh, day, I think, that, that I'm in here and uh, I'm, I'm listening, <laughs> I think, 24 hours a day. And uh, absolutely amazing. Keep, keep up the good work, yeah? And Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava. Thanks for that, Luis. Uh, I believe we're on to uh, your Huckleberry next. That's a good movie, too. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. I just watched it again with my wife for the first time. She hadn't seen it. I was absolutely shocked. Um, but I have, a, I have a question about the Russian uh, pipeline brigade that they had. This, this is probably old, but I, I don't ever remember hearing how that all worked out for them. And is it something that they're still using? Um, and if you guys don't know much about it, I guess that kind of answers the question. But th I know that they were in the north. They were at least threatening to start just laying pipes out to get fuel to the vehicles in the front. Um, but it just seemed like a really stupid idea to me. Nice if you can keep it safe, I guess. But um, and also just to kind of another sort of question about how fragile it looked to me. Do you think one of those uh, those lower yield switchblades with like the 40 mic mic on it, do you think that might be able to put that thing out of commission if it hits, say, the, the pipes and for any, you know, worthwhile amount of time, if it was something that they were using? I mean, they're very vulnerable. Whether the switchblade's the best thing to use on it, I can't tell you. Um, but I haven't seen any evidence of it being utilized en masse. They're still having fuel trucks killed every single day, which would imply that that's not the be-all, end-all strategy. So it just kind of never really got rolled out, or when it did, it just got shown it for, for how silly of an idea it was. Okay, that's really all I had. That was just something I was curious about that I don't remember getting any kind of follow-up on. I didn't. I guess I was asleep that day. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I think the uh, the pipeline core was more of a like propaganda moves than an actual like i don't think they uh we've actually seen them uh since take play a serious part in logistics uh since kiev so all right that's kind of what i thought it was okay all right i'll drop back down epsilon i read on twitter so reputable reputable source it means a theory uh that's the stalled advance uh on the russian side it's due to sometimes Spetsnaz units uh, on the Russian side that uh, uh, refuse to take uh, um, Rache, uh, I don't know the pronunciation in English, um, uh, missions uh, because of the attrition. Um, so what do you think about this theory? Credible, something that someone wrote because it was bored? Uh, just your input on this. We have seen uh, units refuse to fight on the Russian side. There's been tremendously low morale. I'm sure that plays a role in the slow Russian advance. When you don't want to be there, you're definitely not going to fight so hard. You're certainly not going to expose yourself to enemy fire nearly as much, and you're not going to advance quite as quickly. 
Whether that's the only factor, I, I can't say. I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of them. Craig? Sorry. That was uh, just language. I'm 100% sure you already covered this. I came to the recap late. Just real quick. Have you, what's the, what's going on with Izium and uh, Kirsten counteroffensives? Like you just a quick one. They're pretty well stalled at this point. Um, Russia has taken continuous losses, not just along the roads, but also around some of the villages. There's one to the southeast of Izium along the way to Slovyansk called Dovenka. Um, there's some really good uh, battle lines or areas to defend that Ukraine oh. appears to be utilizing. Um, you know, think about think about a highway, and then on both sides of it, there's hills that have woods on them, and a lot of those woods. Uh, a bunch of Ukrainians there that have been able to entrench themselves have essentially killed most uh, Russian attacks that came their way. Uh, there has been more rocket attacks, unfortunately, including some very large ones on Kramatorsk on civilian targets. One essentially blew the hell out of a bunch of apartment buildings. Luckily, only 25 people were injured. None were reported killed. There's also more videos of something on fire slash large explosion in and around Kramatorsk now. So, but the, the offensive appears to be mostly stalled there to the east of Izium, um, near the towns of Liman, Yampil, uh, so the northeast of Severodonetsk. There have been more Russian offensives. However, um, they're currently in an area that's I'm not going to say easy to fight in. There are forests and whatnot, but it looks like Ukraine forces pulled back, blew a bunch of bridges, and are, again, establishing some kind of defensive line. And then to the east of Izium, where the Ukraine forces were pushing towards the Russian supply lines in Oskil, those forces were in danger of being surrounded and pulled back and appear to be, again, making some kind of defensive line. Um, so... They're not, you know, Russians haven't turned around and started losing territory there by any means, but they're also not really gaining any significant territory and specifically none between the area of Izium, Severodonetsk, or Izium and Barbenkov. Awesome. Thanks. I was just wondering because the, um, I, was, I was saying a little bit because uh, the Ukrainian general staff, I believe, there's a statement about eight hours ago said that they were launching a counteroffensive in Izium and Kharkiv areas. So that's what, I was, thank you for the update. My suspicion is to the northwest of Izium, there has been some skirmishes as Ukrainian for it is really more in Kharkiv, um, southeast of Kharkiv. There has been a Ukrainian offensive that has taken some ground. Um, one to the east of Kharkiv in the uh, town of Stari Saltiv. Uh, also further south um, along the MO3 highway. Looks like they're trying to cut off uh, Russian forces. But beyond that, I mean, a few Russian pontoon bridges they set up got blown up um but otherwise nothing that i've seen publicly reported okay awesome thank you thank you oh, let's see if there's a few more questions i may have to sprint out of the house and take care of something real quick but i can you know, still keep my phone on me um all right so 40 russian tanks have passed in the direction of severodonetsk through new astrakhan that is a city to the northeast of severodonetsk severodonetsk is a ukrainian held city um Russia holds the area beyond it to the east. So there's 40 Russian tanks reported. And tanks can mean anything, especially when it's a person on the side of the road taking it. That can be really large armored vehicles. Those can be tanks or something somewhere in between. Um, and thank you to I Stand With Ukraine for sending that to me. Um, and uh, from InfoGeek, Vojevodika, uh, fighting is taking place. It seems that Russians have made a bit of a small breakthrough. Let's see where that is. Um, that is in Luhansk Oblast. Um, to the north of Severodonetsk. So that may be from the same group. Um, they 
you know, depending on what the fine looks like in Rubizna, uh, that is an area between Rubizna, which is to the just to the northwest of Severodonetsk and Severodonetsk proper. So let's keep an eye on that. If there is a Russian offensive that's trying to split off the folks in Rubizna from Severodonetsk, I do know that there's been a lot of fighting in Rubizna in the past few days. Um, a question from uh, from Christie's statement uh, for later reading. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the Pentagon is closely watching its inventories and working with the defense industry to replenish weapons such as Javelin and Stinger missiles as soon as possible. In short, it's going to take a bit to bring production capacities back up to stock. They're doing that, and they will not allow stores to be depleted to a point of concern, um, and that the Stinger may need to be redesigned as most of the stock is from the 80s. Um, uh, Oh, here we go. We were talking about counter-battery fire before from Name on the Trophy. Uh, in the east, the Ukraine 59th Motorized Brigade struck an art- Russian artillery position with counter-battery fire and destroyed three self-propelled guns. Um, and from Colleen, how does one access the recording? Uh, if you go to the Walter Report account, that's the blue and yellow with the WR in the top left corner, you should follow that account because that's the one hosting it. After this space is finished, or if you like, share, retweet the space, which I hope everybody does, um, then the recording link that would normally take you here to listen will become a link to the recording of it. And then you can cycle through it um, at your leisure. You don't have to listen to it all in one go. You can pick and choose. Um, uh, oh, there we go. From uh, the Canadian-Ukraine volunteer, um, says that Russians tried to land troops near Vysokolbirka, um, utilizing 10 helicopters or so. The landing zone was immediately hit by Ukrainian artillery, and at least two were killed. Uh, or two uh, Russian helicopters were destroyed. So hopefully that's the case. Um, we will have to see. Uh, we have to see more. Vysopilka is uh, south of Krivi Reap, um, near Ivankiva. Uh, so really, just due south. That's interesting that the assault on Krivi Reap continues in any way, shape, or form because that's going to be a very tough nut to crack for a lot of reasons. Um, but beyond that, yeah, that, that's more in like sort of the Kherson Donbass area. Uh, but it is interesting that Russians are attempting large operations, uh, even at night, as this one appears may have been. Beyond that, let's see. I know we have a GW up here. Uh, the floor is yours. Hey, hi there. Uh, Colin again from Scotland. Um, I've got a question that looks back at the size of the Russian military. Um, in here in the UK, as um, Russia was building up, uh, we kept on seeing numbers of the, the, the size of the troops, the number of the tanks, the number of the aircraft, helicopters, etc. As we've seen the war progress, um, we've seen a significant number of these um, the tanks are over a thousand destroyed according to Ukraine, well over a hundred for jets, nearly 200 for helicopters, if memory serves me correct. It amazes me that Russia did not deploy far more air power to the uh, to the theatre at the very beginning. We saw when um, US uh, went after Saddam um, in, in Iraq, the the combination of missile and uh, air assault take out the the ground forces there. Russia has been either entirely inept, or to my mind. Their air force, their, their tanks are just not up to scratch, and they've only got a, a limited number that are actually functional uh, compared to uh, the, the the overall number that we believe they have in the West. What's your opinion on that? Is that is that fair, or are they holding aircraft and other things in reserve for a future day? I think what you see is what they got. There's no secret Russian army waiting in the wings. None of this is a feint. Um, I believe the rate limiting step currently 
is not actually the number of aircraft. Russia has tremendous quantities of aircraft, but it's the combat-capable pilots, of which, as you said, they've lost at least 150 helicopters, 150 uh, aircraft. Those are much more difficult to replenish. It takes years to get a pilot trained to the level that they can behave in combat. And Russia's been using Syria as a live-fire testing ground for years, but I don't think it's any mistake that a number of the pilots we shot down early war, people went, wait a second, I know that asshole. He's from Syria. I've seen him there. I've seen him in the pictures. I, I believe that they've started to run low enough on them that we're seeing them be more uh, reserved in their use of air power in areas that they don't fully control. Because think about it. We know that the Russians don't have a tremendous amount of flight hours for their flight crews. Mm-hmm. So if you are a Russian pilot that's never seen combat, yeah, you may know how to land, take off, fire missiles on, you know, targets in Syria a little bit, or you might know it in theory. But what do you do when it's, oh, is this a SA, you know, is this an S-300? Is this some SAM missile battery? Is this a Stinger? Is this, a, you know, something as this a Star Streak? Because you have to do different things for all of those, I would imagine. And as a result, they're saying, hey, buddy, I've seen the last few planes go over and get shot down by shoulder launch stuff. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to fly that close to the front. Um, as far as tanks go, I think that's more of a supply issue than a personnel issue. They have tremendous amounts of tank crews, and we've seen them push a lot of inexperienced people into tanks. Um, you know, There was one BMP, which is not a tank, I know, um, that was found with three officers in it, junior officers, and one of them was like, none of them were combat arms groups. One of them was a meteorologist, and the other two were like supply or logistics or something, and they all got killed because they had no business being in that vehicle at that time in that location. Uh, but we know that a lot of the material for the Russian armor is, as in other tanks, is deprecated. Um, we've heard reports yeah. that as many as uh, 80 to 90% of Russian armor in storage is not immediately able to be shipped to the front. Uh, several weeks ago, there was reports that a Russian commander shot himself in the face when he received that information when he wanted supply. So... Yeah, I had that story over here. I was just going to comment the exact same. It was was that true? Uh, maybe it was. Um, and if the Russians are happy to shoot themselves because of poor equipment, then let's hope more and more do it. Tim? Yeah, I was just going to go back uh, to GW's original question there about uh, he was asking why didn't the Russians um, go into Ukraine and, and do what the West, uh, what we saw the West doing both the uh, Iraq wars, as uh, you guys know, my military background uh, was as a fighter controller in the British Navy. I uh, worked on Sea Harrier squadrons. The Russians just don't have that same uh, kind of aviation doctrine that was developed in the West. Um, they don't have, um, well, they, they do have, but they they haven't used them stuff like AWACS, um, tankers, suppression of enemy air defences, all this combined package stuff that you would see the West do if it was executing this campaign. That's just not the Russian way. They don't have air launch precision guided munitions, laser guided bombs, standoff air launched cruise missiles, stuff like that. Their their whole doctrine is just completely different. To what we would do uh, in, in the West, in in NATO, in an operation um, like you saw in both the Gulf Wars. So that's why the Russians haven't done it because their doctrine is completely different. Um, and that's one of the really important things I've said on here before is that your enemy isn't going to fight how you think um, they should fight. They're they're not 
they're not thinking like you're thinking. Um, and as I say, the, the Russian doctrine is completely different, um, GW. So that, that's why you haven't seen them do that. Um, because they don't practice it, they haven't got the capability to do it. That's interesting. Thanks so much for your commentary. Thank you. Taylor, you have the mic. Hi, I have a question about the steel plant. Do they have a point to the continuous bombardment? Is that to do something to weaken the cement underground? It, it looks like after so long, it's a waste of munitions. Is there a point there? To kill everybody above ground and to damage what they can below ground, as well as there's, there's certain access hatches and uh, things that can be collapsed, even if you're not, because it's about, it ranges anywhere from, uh, you know, the main level is 20 to 40 feet below ground. There are some areas that go as far as 60 feet. Um, you're not going to be able to hit those without some bunker busters, which we have seen Russia use, unfortunately, uh, to some significant effect. But beyond that, there are Ukraine forces above ground occasionally. And if you collapse the tunnels and you collapse the entryways on them, then it's going to limit them. And it's going to cut off their supply of things such as uh, air if you're able to block off enough of those passages. And then we are continuing to see Russian assaults there. doesn't look like the evacuation operation that was supposed to happen today has gone through. Uh, Russia has just continuously shelled it, though it hasn't all been artillery. Some of it is stuff that can actually penetrate into the ground and cause great damage. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Russia sucks. You came up here um, with the... Uh, yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, two, two questions or thoughts uh, from you guys. Um, one, it, how, how much of the heavy artillery from the West, you know, U.S. and Canada in particular, you know, has made it and is deployed there on the front line. And then as a follow-up to that, how effective, you know, is it being? I mean, can we say that it, it is actually making a difference or how is it faring, you know, against the Russians and really how is it helping the Ukrainians? Is there any indication there? Um, I'm sorry, you don't mind repeating the first part of your question. On it's, This is the Western aid? Yeah, just, just the, uh, you know, how much of it at this point is deployed, you know, on that Eastern front? Uh, you know, for the Ukrainians. Were you asking about? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Were you asking about the artillery specifically, or or just everything that we're sending over? Yeah, the artillery is the, the kind of the, the the big shipment here lately, right? These ninety or a hundred howitzers, etc. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're they they have a significant uh, tactical uh, range compared to their uh, Russian counterparts, so they're pretty uh, high priority item yes we don't know the specific numbers and we probably won't for some time um but we know there's at least reports that a number of them have been deployed uh whether it's in the east or somewhere else is difficult to say uh but if i was a betting man i'd say it's going to be a because there's only so many of these um it's going to be diff more difficult to run them straight into the donbass region um because the rail lines there have been menaced and in many cases damaged by Russian forces versus if you bring them to Kharkiv areas where there is a more stable supply line and then you might see them there or you might see them places where it's easier to get stuff in and you're less likely to lose them, if that makes sense. But this is more speculation than fact, unfortunately. I think we may have lost him. So it looks like we're, uh, we're running a little light on speakers. That's totally fine. Gives you guys more opportunity to come on up and ask your own questions. If you click that button in the lower left-hand corner, um, it looks like a microphone. We'll get you on up here. If you've got a question, comment, a concern about something we might have said that we were not entirely accurate on, by all means, we'd love to hear it. If you feel a little shy, you can always send a direct message to Imperius, to the Walter Report, to myself if necessary, 
and we'll try and answer it to the best of our abilities. And if we don't know the question, I think we're all grown-up adults here enough to say we don't know. And then we've got several hundred people here listening. I'm sure one of you guys would know. Uh, failing that, because we'd like to get some more people in here, uh, the more people we have, the more questions to get asked, the more information we can all learn. Uh, that button in the lower right-hand corner, that's a blue circle with a quill and a plus sign. Click on that, share, retweet the space, whatever. The more people we get in here, the better it works out for everyone. Um, oh, and it looks like we got Carl Brosser up. Good to see you again, brother. Hey, uh, thank you for the great update. So, <clears throat> so not so much a question, but there's one thing I saw, I think, yesterday that I'm probably really late to the party about because um, it was from April 9th, but it was like the Russian, um, uh, I don't know, foreign minister or something, and she, she was ranting uh, about, you know, Ukraine and Nazified this and that, and we went on to this diatribe that uh, that the fact that Ukraine claims Borscht as Ukrainian uh, is proof of their xenophobia and, um, uh, and their Nazified state. And, you know, it's just crazy how ridiculous some of these things are. And it actually uh, kind of reminds me of Nazi Germany in a while. You know, I remember studying, you know, their, their kind of the cult of Nazism and the kind of mythology that they made up. And, it, you know, it, it was so inconsistent and, uh, and, and lame, right? It was like worse than a B-rated movies script. Um, and there's just so many things we've seen, uh, you know, coming out of Russia and, and the way that they frame things that you're like, how could anyone even think this way? Or, or how can everyone b b believe this stuff or actually run with, you know, some of the propaganda they're, they're doing? But, you know, it seems they do. It's kind of like um, back in Australia and New Zealand, we have a meringue sort of dessert called a pavlova. And, you know, both countries kind of claim they're the original uh, country for that. But, you know... <laughs> I can't imagine if Australia would be like, you know, actually New Zealand's a Nazi country because they think Pavlov is the own thing. Well, in effect, I mean, the, that word probably has Russian etymology, so maybe Russia should invade New Zealand. But uh, I don't know. The, my main kind of point is just kind of the, the mythology, uh, that's maybe not the right word, but kind of the, the narratives that so they come up for, for these things. You know, it would be so comical if it wasn't uh, you know just part of something behind a genocidal killing machine um which takes any comedy out of it um but uh, i don't know i just want to see uh, maybe what are some of the other ridiculous things that uh, people have seen and and what they think about that that's all I mean, you're right. We, and we can laugh at the absurdity without laughing at the background. I mean, a little bit of humor will keep yourself sane. Dark humor is a very real and very capable coping mechanism. And if somebody tells you that, you know, this, that this entire topic is off limits and should never be laughed about and you should be sad and miserable about it all the time, well, they're not really living in reality. You have to find ways to make it through, especially traumatic instances. And if you're listening to this day in and day out, or even worse if you are there, so it can be a traumatic incident. Um, I don't know if you heard the one about uh, Russian media claiming that Satanism has become involved on the Ukrainian side. They uh, spray painted a pentagram on a captured Ukrainian building and then said that the Ukrainians were conducting child sacrifices there. And that's been making the rounds. That's uh, probably one of the more outlandish ones that I've seen. Um, I didn't realize we were quite so far into black magic. Um, but uh, apparently uh, that's, that's what the Russians' statement is now on. 
you know, how further can we demonize these guys? We'll break out the Dungeons and Dragons books. Let's find a reason. So, you know, that, I think that's something that's worth laughing at, just the absurdity of it all. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. And and the the other thing is there is precedent in history for for things that were both as terrible and both as ridiculous and you know what they tried to back up a serious nar- narrative from. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of craziness. Uh, the other one was the lady, and you'll see this before, um, and you'll probably see it going forward as well. The Ukrainian woman, old lady pensioner, who uh, came out to greet the Russian troops with the Soviet flag, got turned around and made into a big propaganda icon by Russia. Uh, it turns out that she came out because she figured, if I have a Soviet, I have this old Soviet flag lying around in the basement from my you know, hus- late husband's war stuff. If I show it to them, then they won't kill everybody. Um, and uh, the Russians got a big kick out of it. They took a bunch of pictures. They made some statues of her, put them up in Melitopol, Mariupol. Uh, it turns out she's actually in Kiev now because her son was able to evacuate. And then even though she was a nice propaganda icon, the Russians still blew the hell out of her house. So she evacuated. And uh, the Ukraine government actually had to step in and kind of give an explanation on what happened because people were understandably kind of harassing her, thinking you're a traitor to the cause. You've been against us the whole time. You're a bastard. If I find you, I'm going to hurt you. They're like, no, 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 no. wasn't like that lady was trying to do something inventive uh, to stop the Russians from, you know, attacking people obviously didn't work, but please leave the old lady alone. Nina. Yes. uh, About Russian propaganda. uh, I have read a lot and uh, we uh, from the Western world and democratic, democratic countries, uh, it's completely impossible to even try to understand how the Russians think. So uh, I have uh, stopped uh, trying to <laughs> even understand this uh, this way. I just, uh, yeah, this is how they, uh, how they do, but it's impossible because uh, this has been going on for 500 years in their country, uh, uh, this kind of mentality.